welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 92. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's episode, we just want to remind you that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it to your social media stories. Also, if you're listening on iTunes, you can always please feel free to give us a rating and write a review as well. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com to inquire, or you can find that link in the show notes below or any of our Instagram bios. And despite being called the bodybuilding dietitians, we don't just coach physique competitors, we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. So without further ado, episode 92, Jack, what's the first question? Cool. So the first question is, is it dangerous to go below BMR in a cut? Surely a deficit is a deficit and the body can't tell. Yeah. So this is a very good question, isn't it? So BMR, so BMR stands for basal metabolic rate. And a lot of people generally interchange BMR with RMR. So basal metabolic rate with resting metabolic rate, they're pretty similar, but they're also a little bit different. So pretty much BMR is taken under much more strict conditions. So if you were to measure your BMR, generally you actually have to stay overnight in a lab. You have to be fasted for at least 12 hours. You usually have to have slept for the last eight hours. And then what they actually do is they measure your BMR by gas analysis by putting like this little hood over you, or you've got to like breathe into a tube. And uh, they usually do that right when you wake up from after like an eight hour sleep after you've been fasted. And the whole point of that is so that you are just in a complete parasympathetic nervous state, right? You are completely relaxed. You are completely at rest because both BMR and RMR are essentially trying to accurately calculate how many calories you need as an individual to just maintain homeostasis. So pretty much just keep your lungs breathing, right? Keep your heart beating, keep your brain functioning, keep a regulated body temperature, just how many calories you actually require to just maintain normal bodily functions so that you stay alive and so that you stay healthy. It doesn't take into account uh, any of the calories necessarily burnt through the thermic effect of food, through exercising, through neat, any of that. It's just the amount of calories you really need to maintain homeostasis. So yeah, BMR is usually taken under those very strict conditions, but resting metabolic rate that can be taken under less strict conditions. So imagine measuring your resting metabolic rate using something like a med gem, which some people might be familiar with. It's kind of just like, I don't know, Jack, it's how would you describe it? It's kind of just like a little pod that you put in your mouth and yeah, it measures your a rough estimate. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I guess I can almost imagine it as like, you know, those Instagram girls that you see with like the teeth whitening companies, you know how they yeah. like, <laughs> they've got like this thing sticking out of their mouth. They're like, smile. It's kind of like that. I don't know. You just breathe into this little thing. Uh, but yeah, so a med gem that generally calculates your resting metabolic rate. But the thing about resting metabolic rate, right, is that it's estimated that the average male's resting metabolic rate will be around 1,700 calories per day. The average female's is around 1,400 calories per day. 
But like, you just got to argue with that because who on this planet is generally average, right? Like there's way too many factors that influence it, right? Like your muscle mass, your body fat, your age, your sex, just your genetics, right? Like your disease status, all these different things can influence your resting metabolic rate and your BMR. Yeah. So if BMR is the minimal amount you need for vital functions, then I think now that Tiara has explained it, it should be fairly obvious that you shouldn't be eating below BMR unless you want your heart to stop beating or your lungs to stop functioning or etc. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So like definitely it's just not worth compromising those vital functions. And again, we have to think about how, yes, yeah, 1700 calories, right? For an average male, 1400 calories for an average female. But again, like I don't necessarily know where exactly they kind of calculated those numbers from. And I highly doubt that those are applicable for physique competitors who perhaps are in the very tail end of a very chronic dieting phase. Cause we have to think about how just like anything with metabolism, right? Like when we try to put a number on it, it's a moving target. So your BMR and your RMR, it's going to be a moving target. So Perhaps if you are a very small female, let's say that you are 45 kilograms, right? And you're at the tail end of a diet and you're trying to get really lean, right? Like, and you right now perhaps are eating less than 1400 calories. I don't necessarily want you to think that, oh gosh, like, you know, I'm eating below my BMR. Like, yes, you're not eating a substantial amount of calories, but your BMR is very unique and very specific to you in this exact situation right now. So in that case, your BMR might actually be closer to 1,200 calories or 1,100 calories. Again, you would never actually know unless you actually put yourself under those very strict lab conditions. Same goes for a why, male. That's why I wouldn't use formulas to determine your BMR, like mm-hmm. maybe in a healthy state, yes. But if you've been chronically dieting, then there's no point using those formulas because they're going to spit out a number mm-hmm. of, of you at maybe maintenance of that body weight or at, an, at a normal situation as opposed to being having dieted for like 15, mm-hmm. etc. weeks. So I would, if you're going to worry about it, then use a med gem first mm-hmm. or just don't worry about it because it's likely that your BMR has come down to adjust to metabolic adaptation. Exactly, that metabolic adaptation. And we've spoken about different factors that occur during metabolic adaptation before. And some of the main ones really are a decrease in your resting and your exercising heart rate, and also a decrease in your respiratory rate. So if you're taking less breaths per minute at rest and your heart is beating less times per minute at rest, right? Every minute of every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, right? that's going to be compounded to equate to less calories burnt overall. So essentially, because you've been chronically dieting and you've metabolically adapted to that, your BMR or your RMR will decrease over time. But once you enter back into a maintenance and a surplus phase, that will actually come back up. So no need to worry. But yeah, bottom line, don't eat below it, right? That would be very, very low calories, extremely low calories. So it's not, it's not necessary. All right, Jack. So moving on to the next question. So this one says, how fast should you gain weight post-show? How quickly? All right. So how quickly should you gain weight post-show? So I think in the past, we've kind of answered this quite quickly and we kind of just spouted off the, the guidelines, like the more objective guidelines that we use for gaining weight post-show, which is around like 
five to 10% of your stage weight in the first four to eight weeks. And it can be very well and good saying that, but you got to remember the psychology going on with people at the same time. Some people might like there's there's a few different types of people like some people might really like having that objective numbers to just follow through and hit and like still tracking macros the day after competing still on exact track whereas there's other people who might go it's completely normal to have a day to enjoy yourself post-show but it might turn into a few days into a week into two weeks and then before you know it you're 20 kilos heavier in in a month and then there's always a bunch of people in between those scenarios. And there's even people who won't gain enough weight post-show. And then they're wondering why they still feel like crap and they're not really making any progress. So it's important to kind of discuss with your coach or if you're coaching yourself, um, discuss with yourself what your plan is post-show and set and examine how you feel about the get weight gain process, where you, whether you're going to relish it or whether you're quite afraid of losing that conditioning. And you've got to remember that if your goal is to improve and compete again, then and feel better, probably more importantly, then you do need to put on some weight because your body your your body is primed for body fat gain after a show because you're so lean and it's kind of like the survival response where your you got your body doesn't know you're competing. You if imagine if you're in a caveman scenario where you are incredibly lean and you're almost starving, so you haven't had anything to eat. You haven't been able to hunt any animals. You haven't been able to forage for any food. So your body in that situation is just going to put on body fat. It doesn't care about muscle in that yeah. instance. It just needs energy. So yeah, if your plan is to try and maintain conditioning post-show, then if you, any weight that you gain is probably going to be fat. Mm-hmm. You are probably going to regain any lost muscle mass in, in the more moderate term. But in the short term, it is mainly going to be fat, which, and you kind of have to prepare yourself for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. I don't want that to come off in the wrong way. Like no matter what you eat, you're just going to gain body fat. Because if you do approach it with a really good mindset, right? Get yourself back into a moderate surplus, get back into the gym, start training hard. Like you said, you still are going to regain some lost muscle mass, you know, some, some lost fullness, and then start to actually build a little bit more muscle mass. So even if you're training hard, guys, it's not like you're just going to put on body fat. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not going to be that bad. And I would, I mean, the way I would personally look at it is one, I can focus, focus a lot more on my performance in the gym. I, I'm still going to look good without looking. People aren't going to ask me, oh, are you well? Have you been sick recently? People are probably going to say, oh, wow, you're looking, that t-shirt's looking tighter on you or um, you're looking fuller, your strength is yeah. going up in the gym. People mm-hmm. will compliment uh, how, how you're looking instead of asking how, if you've been sick recently. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll just feel better in general. Libido will come back up. All that, those good things. And for me, there are really no downsides. Like I don't really care too much about maintaining that stage conditioning. Mm-hmm. I know if anything, I'm probably going to look better 99% of the time. And that 1% of the time where you're carved up, pumped up under good lighting, you're not going to be in those situations anyway. That's pr- purely reserved for the stage. Yeah. And guys, you just have to remember what you probably just went through, right? You probably just went through a solid five to six months of dieting, right? And you achieved your goal. You got on stage in the best possible condition that you could at that time, right? Hopefully the best condition of your life so far, but you achieved that goal, man. But 
dieting's over, okay? We can only diet for so long. So I'd say you, you gave it enough time, okay, in that phase, but it's time to exit out of that phase, right, and start working toward new goals. And again, if you are serious about this, like, you just got to accept that a part of making improvements, a big, huge part of that is putting on a little bit of body weight, and a little bit of body weight is going to come with a little bit of body fat. But with those guidelines, so 5 to 10% of your stage weight in the first four to eight weeks, right, I would still argue that that's not necessarily extreme, right? And if you didn't get as lean or if you're competing in a division that doesn't require you to be as lean, so let's say a bikini competitor, right? Like we all still work really, really hard. We still get relatively lean, but we're not like shredded like bodybuilders, okay? So if you didn't necessarily get that lean, I would say that go closer to that 5% of your stage weight in the first four to eight weeks. Let's say you got on stage at like 50 kilograms, right? 5% of your stage weight is only 2.5 kilograms within the first four to eight weeks. 2.5 kilograms gained over one to two months, man. And taking into consideration that, you know, takes into account some fluid, some extra glycogen, right? That's not too much. I reckon you'll still be looking really good. Even if you gained five kilograms and you're training really hard over two months, I'd say that you'd still look pretty damn good. Mm. But then let's say you have a bodybuilder, right? Who got on stage around 80 kilograms, shredded to the bone. I would argue that for, uh, you know, for health reasons, he should go closer to that 10%. So he should go closer to gaining around eight kilograms of body weight within the first four to eight weeks. Yeah, like I'm I'm planning to get on stage around 80, probably mm-hmm. a bit below. And yeah, there's no way I'm just gaining four kilos mm-hmm. in eight weeks. I'm probably going to gain more than that. Yeah. Because, and not not like blowing it out of proportion or not, mm-hmm. not binge eating, but I'm going to get back to tracking quite soon, probably have a day or two to enjoy myself and then track from there. And because last time I, wow, I probably gained maybe I competed around 76 on stage and that was in around April, May. Mm -hmm. And then in December, I remember I was still like 79, 80 kilos. And I just felt, and part of that was being injured, but I remember feeling very average for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm definitely don't want that to happen again. And that was purely because I just didn't put on enough body weight. Yeah. But personally, like I find that the post-competition period is actually one of my favorite periods. That is when like, man, just having an influx of energy, extra carbohydrates every single day. And if you, if you, if you're serious about this, guys, if you love this, if you want to be doing this for decades to come and you genuinely love training, right? That is some of the most exciting few months post-show of actually training because during the tail end of a competition, I think anyone can speak to that performance. It just generally starts to plateau, right? Like you're not getting the best pumps in the gym. You're definitely not hitting PRs every single session. Like you're still getting through it, but it's not necessarily as exciting because again, you're just not making all time, you know, um, PBs, right. And doing be feeling your absolute strongest and your most energetic, but post show, right? If you manage things correctly, getting back onto a solid training program, aiming to improve every single session, right? Tracking your training, lifting a little bit more. You'll just find that, you know, at least I find, and I find a lot of people who handle this 
post-show situation well is that you just can generally perform better and better every single session and it's so freaking motivating because you're energetic you're strong right and you're still relatively lean coming out of that post-show period if you don't like blow things out of proportion that you just actually look really good so personally i love the post-show phase but i I just, I, I love this and I take this very seriously. So I'd, I can confidently say I personally handle it well because it matters a lot to me. I love it. Yeah, totally. I think everyone responds differently. And Tierra is someone who is is still quite bouncy towards the <laughs> end of a comp prep and she can respond very well and get stuck into training. But I, I, I'm not, I don't want to predict myself feeling bad by mm-hmm. any means. But I know I'm probably going to take one or two weeks of very easy training, mm-hmm. like maybe even one week of just training three days a week. The next week, just going off how I feel, training via intensity, probably like a six to seven intensity. And then once I feel better, I'll get into more intense work with lower volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it really comes down to knowing yourself and also if you're a coach, knowing your athlete, right? And just really just preparing for that that phase as mm. best you can. But overall, yeah. I'm always going to try to encourage someone, right, to look at it in a very positive light and always, you know, really put a huge emphasis on training performance and positively changing your body composition and really, yeah, seeing that weight gain in a positive light and making sure that that weight gain does translate into improved training performance because mm. that's very motivating. You don't want to just be gaining weight but not feeling strong or energetic at all, right? Yes, true. But it is called post-show recovery for a reason. So mm-hmm. like a nutrition is only one side of the coin. It probably is more important than the training side of things mm-hmm. in terms of the recovery aspect. But if you're trying to recover and then going back into like five days or six days a week in the gym, like the same volume with even higher intensity, then you're probably not going to feel that great. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm definitely, I definitely advocate for a deload after that mm. freaking week. <laughs> yeah. Definitely first week, take a deload and then you can ease back into things. Yeah. I'm not just saying jump the gun and go start hitting PRs first week back. Cause yeah, probably not going to happen. <laughs> mm. I think, yeah. But, um, if anyone has any more specific questions about that or needs more tailored information you can Mm -hmm. head over to our website and make an inquiry because it is you don't want to stuff up your recovery post-show it's an incredibly important period and sets you up for your improvement season if you want to compete again definitely we'll move on to the next question though this one says is there any dietary tips you have to promote sleep hygiene timing types of food sups interesting question so where would you start with this one so there's quite a few things we can discuss on this one I'll start off with probably the meal timing aspect because I think that's probably the most important in terms of nutrition. So there's a bit more research to indicate that the, the, the meal timing is actually quite an important factor in terms of when you consume food. Again, there will be some individual variation, but from what we've seen, having like a 12-hour window from when you wake up from when you go to bed is, is quite useful. Uh, I should just say from when you wake up, not really to when you go to bed. But let's say you have your first meal at 8 a.m., then you would naturally want to have your last meal at 8 p.m. And then try and make that around two hours before you would go to bed as well. Because mm-hmm. most people don't can raise your body temperature and also raise your heart rate slightly if you do consume a big meal. And then if you go to bed straight away, you're, not in, you're in a suboptimal position to go to sleep. Yeah, so definitely trying your best to implement that 12-hour fasting window 
and yeah, two hours prior to bed. I personally, I find that works really well. Like I always just like, it feels off if I have a big dinner, like, or like if you go out to dinner and have a meal and then come home and then try to fall asleep, like, you know, quite soon after that, it just doesn't quite feel right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And other than that, like there's in terms of nutrition, I can't really see many other things like maybe not having a huge dinner as well. Mm -hmm. Like that can kind of also lead into like the higher body temperature, higher heart rate as well, Mm -hmm. because we've got to remember you want to be in a parasympathetic state. And even though the process of digesting food is parasympathetic, if it raises your heart rate or your core temperature, then that's leading more to sympathetic. Yeah. Generally when it comes to chrononutrition, right? So chrononutrition relating to the timing of your meals, right? And how your body is actually going to respond at different times of the day in response to nutrient influxes, right? The literature generally does support actually front loading more of your calories. Now that doesn't mean front loading all of your calories and not eating dinner, right? But it just means generally our body actually can tolerate glucose, right? And carbohydrates much better during the early portions of the day rather than the later portions of the day right? We just generally sustain blood glucose levels at a slightly lower level compared to later in the day, we could have large blood glucose levels spike. And that's really interesting because different organs in our body do have these biological clocks that do regulate glucose levels differently. And also behaviorally as well. I'm generally always an advocate for trying to get people to eat more of their calories during the day rather than saving a bunch of calories really late at night. Because Behaviorally, if you have more energy during the early portions of the day, when the sun is out, when you're out moving, when you're at work, then if you have more energy, you're generally more likely to burn more energy. Compared to at night, if you save like three quarters of your daily calories for a big meal at night, you have a really big meal, which you might enjoy, right? But then you just feel really stuffed. Behaviorally, you're probably not going to go out and do a lot, even if you have the energy, because like it's dark outside you're not going to go walk your dog out in the dark you're probably more likely to brush your teeth and you know watch something on netflix or go on your computer or something and then generally if you're saving all of this food for later during the day you might be conserving more energy during the actual early portions of the day and it's kind of like this feedback loop system too because if people have really big meals at night then that's the reason why they don't necessarily feel hungry in the morning so it's kind of like gradually twisting that around so you can get someone eating a bit more during the early portions of the day and less during the later portions. Cause yeah, having a really big meal at night, it just can interfere with some people's sleep. But another caveat to that is that if you have like no food at night, you can Mm. wake up in the middle of the night, hypoglycemic, really hungry, and that majorly impairs your sleep. Or even I find that even in my mini cut, I try to fall asleep and I would feel a bit hypo, Mm -hmm. like low blood sugar. And that's not nice either. And I mean, other than nutrition, I think it's worthwhile discussing a few other aspects of sleep hygiene, because I think it is quite popular for people to to discredit sleep hygiene and say, oh, it's just falling asleep. You just lie down in bed and go to sleep. But if only it was that easy, (laughs) some people really can sleep that well. And I I wish that was me, even though I, I do sleep quite well, usually. But some people really do struggle and they need a routine. I think a routine is really important and really trying to encourage the parasympathetic state and like following something because you're 
establishing habits and following a routine, your body will get used to that and it will realize, okay, I'm following this routine. It's time to sleep now. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like doing different things every night or doing something very stimulating. Like I remember when I used to play uh, soccer, like doing an evening of soccer training and then going bed like an hour later, I would just be up tossing and turning because yeah. I would be so revved up from soccer still. So. And for example, like people who work all day, then have a pre-workout at 5 p.m., go hit the gym for two hours, then come home, have a big meal, and then try to fall asleep so they can try to get that eight hours, right? All of those different things combined, their sympathetic nervous system is probably through the roof, right? It's very hard to relax and wind down. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, so a few a few things I would reckon recommend as Tieris just said is trying to push caffeine as far away from sleep as possible Mm -hmm. and if if you do train in the afternoon slash evening try it out if if you do feel it impacting with your sleep then maybe go for like a non-stim approach Mm -hmm. using something like beta alanine or nitrates which doesn't have the same effects as caffeine but they can still be performance enhancing Mm -hmm. for some people yeah um, or just some pre-workout food like man mm. sometimes just having a banana or a nice piece of toast with some honey that can give you a decent amount of energy too compared to some caffeine <laughs> yeah <laughs> again in a different way but yeah <laughs> and other things like having a source of white noise which might sound weird but is actually again promotes that that habit forming mm-hmm. so instead of listening to like the dog parking barking down the street or the cars going past like we have a fan on at night mm-hmm. you could just get used to that and it cools you down as well, which leads us into the next point, which is having a relatively cool environment, like 24, 25 degrees. I think it might even be cooler. I think the perfect temperature to sleep at is around 18 or something. Oh, really? Yeah, it's wow. a bit cooler. Yeah, yeah well, um, I definitely find that. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't think anyone likes sleeping in 30 <laughs> degrees. <so. laughs> I think even 24, 25, that might be a little bit warm. Yeah, I, yeah that's true. Um, I was, I'll admit that that is too high. Yeah, I guess we do live in Australia, so you get mm. used to it. <laughs> and yeah, the other, I guess the other last thing really is just forming that routine and like mm. either reading before bed or wearing your blue light blocking glasses if you do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and not, yeah, like I would even say like watching Netflix right before bed, like that's, that's fine if it creates mm-hmm. a habit and makes you sleepy and sometimes it even depends on what you're watching though mm. like personally i've even found like when if we watch like an action-packed movie right or something that is very stimulating i found that sometimes that can even interfere with my sleep compared to if we watch like the blue planet or like you know like some david attenborough documentary mm. or something really relaxing uh or even like you know some people like to wind down at night and play video games or something but if you're doing something like like with blaring gunshots in your ears right and you're killing people and then you're like oh 9 p.m gotta hit the hay right like whoa i wouldn't say you're in the most relaxed yeah. state so yeah well, technically video games is a sport now it's an e-sport yeah so <laughs> well yeah literally playing, soccer, playing sports <laughs> right before bed but yeah generally what we do like personally i like to get off my phone at like 7 30 like latest 8 p.m i like to get off my phone at least an hour before i go to sleep because as an online coach, I feel like I'm always on that thing, man. So I'm just like, I need to chill the heck out. So I just put my phone away. So sorry, any clients, if I don't reply between the hours of like 8 p.m. and like 5.30 a.m. or something, <laughs> just not on my phone. And I don't even think, I don't even know if that's something to apologize for because I'm on it all day. But yeah, I like to get off my no, phone. No, you, you have to do it 24 hours. Jeez, man. Like, oh, I, I can't. Uh, but, and then we usually watch Netflix till like, what, like 
eight thirty, eight forty five, and then wind down and read our Kindles for like like half an hour or something. And man, I've been sleeping like a baby, right? Like sleeping mm. like a stone. So yeah, it's that's a nice routine for us. But it's always going to be about finding your routine and tinkering around with things. And again, yeah, I t- think people who would struggle the most maybe are those who train at night mm-hmm. and then they have to like get prepared for the next day and they might want to also wind down which adds an extra hour onto mm-hmm. their night before you know it it's quite late and etc yeah so. so in those cases it's really going to be you know and if you have a coach discuss different you know things and different strategies for how you could perhaps like manage your time a little bit better and maybe swap your training night session shift to as well. yeah, night shift throws a whole spanner in the works. Like I work with a few nurses and I just admire them the way that they can manage everything. It's pretty incredible, but yeah, I guess main things. Yeah. Pretty much the blue light chilling out, getting into that parasympathetic nervous system state. Right. And, uh, just feeling really relaxed, trying to not have a meal closer than two hours before bed. And also just with those carbohydrates, just if you're in a dieting phase, right? Like some people just find what works well for you, right? Like have a few carbs in your bedtime meal, not like a copious amount, but also a few so that you don't find that you go hypoglycemic during the night. Cause it ain't pleasant. I've been mm. there so many times. Yeah. It's, um, it's rough. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think we'll wrap things up with the formal questions there and we'll head into one thing that we each learned this week. Mm-hmm. So Jack, what do you learn this week? So yeah, most of my things come from podcasts, I guess, because it's an easy source of information. Mm-hmm. I highly encourage people to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was yeah listening to this interview with someone and they kind of just were talking about people's opinion and people are like someone can say something and people will just kind of take what they need from it and then and then go away. They won't kind of listen to the full thing before making an opinion. Like just about controversial topics like Black Lives Matter or politics, someone some will say, okay, it, in some situations it's okay to consume sugar because some people who have, someone who has a very high energy intake and needs to perform their given sport, it might be useful for someone to have sugar to allow them to eat enough. And then people take from that wow, you, you advocate high sugar diets. Like mm-hmm. people should only be eating sugar. They shouldn't be having any vegetables. They should only be having table sugar, blah, blah, blah. And it's, uh, it's just a complicated world out there yeah. in that instance. People just blow it out of proportion, right? They just like, there's no in between. It's They always just take it to the extreme. They're like, so you're saying if I want to hit my macros, I should just, you know, drink oil and eat table sugar and just eat egg whites and then I'll be fine. And I'm like, no, I did not say that in the slightest. Mm. <laughs> and I think we do quite a good, we purposely stay... We don't say anything super controversial mm-hmm. on this podcast because yeah. we, uh, yeah, we like to toe the line a bit. <laughs> and although, yeah, some people do like to get into the controversy to to spread the word and mm-hmm. get some shares and stuff. But yeah, there's. I think nutrition it ultimately shouldn't be that controversial. Mm-hmm. Like it, if it's backed up by evidence, then the only reason you're being controversial is if you're, you're doing something that might not be right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that anything that does sound a little bit too left field kind of go, ah, this doesn't necessarily sound like the most balanced approach. Cause this person is saying that I should only consume this and never consume that. So 
if you just look out for vocabulary and there are those words like, you know, good and bad, only, none, ah, all of these different words, then kind of question like, hmm, is this the most sustainable diet, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's, uh, everyone's entitled to an opinion. Yeah. And okay. uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not the sort of person who gets mm-hmm. annoyed or aggravated by that. But anyway, <laughs> what did you learn this week? Okay, so this week I actually learned something from my posing coach, Steph. So Steph Calm, she's an IFBB bikini pro, and she's helping me pose every single week this, uh, you know, this season, which is just learning so much from her. It's literally every single session is so valuable. She's a damn good posing coach. But something that I actually learned about this week is about actually showing off your glutes, whether you're in a front shot or a side shot. And originally, you know, like, Generally, people say lean into the front leg, you know, like put more weight into that front hip and that will actually help your glute pop. But rather than actually putting more weight into that front leg to try to, you know, fill out that front glute, instead what you actually want to do is actually more push your weight back. So you actually want to more push your glutes back and arch your back. So you actually want to push yourself back and kind of stand up tall and that'll actually make your glutes look just as big and not lopsided, not look like you're trying to like lean forward. Right. Mm. And, uh, it's It's just about the angles. Literally it is all about the angles and all about the positioning, but just learning that little trick, it has just transformed my front pose because originally, right? Like I was just putting a bunch of weight into that front hip and like It was like my chest was kind of collapsing, but now I can put my chest up, look really tall, and my glutes look just as big, if not bigger. Yes, and I look even taller. But hey, you know, show it off. But uh, yeah, that's something I learned this week is push back, not forward or not to the side. So girls, anyone out there, like just play around with, you know, your posing and see if that works for you, arching your back and really pushing yourself back and just see if that works for you and see if it uh, makes your posing look any different. Right. But yeah, that's pretty much the end of this episode. Awesome. So thanks for listening, guys. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to repost it onto your Instagram story. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. And would also appreciate if you could leave a review on iTunes. All right, guys. See you later. Bye.